Welcome to the Scotland's Choice podcast. The journey to our referendum is underway. So join us as we discuss how together we can build a fairer, a more equal and a more prosperous Scotland. Our goal is to ensure that our listeners are informed, that they are encouraged to get involved and will hopefully inspire others to think about the possibilities for Scotland. Because... As our country renews, we need to choose our own future before somebody else chooses it for us. I'm your host, Drew Hendry MP, and welcome back to the second of these special episodes of Scotland's Choice, containing highlights of previous conversations which will remain relevant going forward into this important year for the independence movement. So let's get straight back into the highlights. So I think businesses, one, have now realised that we are in a state of constant change. Even though they might not like it, we might not like it, that's the way it is. Surely it is better to be at the head of that change, driving that change, taking accountability and responsibility and creating the change you want to see and you want to have rather than being subjected to the mercy of somebody who fundamentally doesn't act in your own interests. And I think a lot of people and a lot of people in business have really changed their view. The EU access to the single market is utterly vital. Access to the labour they need at a point when they need it is utterly vital to business. That is a significant change. You're absolutely right. Regular listeners to this podcast will have heard me say this before, and I mean, no apologies for saying it again, but when you look at the way business has been affected by Brexit, we're now Mm -hmm. forecast to lose £9 billion uh, in exports by 2030. I mean, that's just a crazy attack, uh, or a yes. self-inflicted crazy attack on business. Um, and, uh, you know, like I say, just as we said, we're discussing earlier, makes staying in the UK far more uncertain than the uh, than the positive opportunities with independence. But let's talk about something that is, you know, a challenge um, just now to independence. The interim period between a yes vote and independence, uh, and then between that and rejoining the EU poses uh, some challenges for Scotland, that's a, a matter of fact. The, there will be some uncertainties for business, but we, we know that Scottish businesses are resilient. Michelle, what reassurance can you give to businesses about the implications of a border between Scotland and the remaining part of the UK? First of all, I would say I think you are fair to reflect on the challenges, and this is something that we need to recognise, the fear uh, of people borders are normal Uh, and for those of us of a certain age we remember traveling through Europe and the multitude of borders so they are quite normal but the nature and type of border that we would have with the rest of the UK given how borders and the concept of them have evolved it's no bad thing to want to control your borders but that has to be balanced against doing trade So the SNP and the Scottish Government differ to the current incarnation of Tories in Westminster who set out knowingly and deliberately to introduce restrictions and to introduce barriers to trade. We would want to limit them as much as possible. So our vision of independence is about facilitating trade as a digital and technical savvy country who can be trusted to do business with, as I said earlier. 
So I personally would want to see as much limits on borders as possible whilst recognising there will need to be a border. But then let me also point out, though, that the majority of trade, uh, intra-trade between the, in the UK is services based, so it wouldn't be impacted by borders in quite the same way, because when we tend to think about borders, we think about products rather than services. So that's an important point as well. So you're talking about, about financial services, about insurance services, things that don't yeah. need to go in crates. Professional services. You, you, could talk, you could also talk about oil, gas, even water. Um, uh-huh. You know that uh, that goes across the the border. These kind of piped goods as well. You know that uh, make up. And a lot, a lot of people don't realise that sixty two percent of Scotland's manufactured goods actually go outside the the UK and into the EU and other markets. So you know, it, so it isn't the quite the picture that they like to paint on that. I think that there's also a, a point to be made. We could look at many of our our near neighbours, um, but it, but of course Ireland is quite handy because it's just. We can see it from Scotland, and it's smaller than Scotland, has less resources. Ireland used to do 90% of its trade with the UK, and it's now down to 10%. So, you know, this is something that, you know, we can change the dial on, isn't it, as we go forward? Well, yeah, and we've seen the evidence of that. And maybe, really, it's about vision. The EU economy is nearly six times the size of the rest of the UK. And by re-entering the single market in Europe, we would be able to gain free access again. I think in visionary terms, we want to be in the world trading with, with the rest of the world. We want to be within Europe. And of course, as I said at the beginning, there's nothing stopping us trading with lots of other countries. That was one of the great myths of, of Brexit. It is a matter for me of vision and ambition. We don't want to turn away and look inwards and only want to trade with who will continue to be friends and partners in the rest of the UK. We want to be trading everywhere and we definitely want to be ambitious. Stop the world, Scotland and Scottish business wants to get on. The media in Scotland often equates a just transition with the oil and gas sector uniquely, doesn't it? However, as you've just pointed out, the just transition is wide ranging. In an independent Scotland, who stands to benefit from this? I think we all do, um, yeah. and that's the that's the main thing about a just transition because it's not just it's not just about that investment in, in new technologies, new renewable technologies, which is absolutely the most important thing. It's also about the benefits that we can get from the harnessing of those skills, the exporting of those skills. That's of course one of the the main reasons why the oil and gas industry has done so well because it's been able to export its knowledge around the world and hopefully as we we move into that renewable future we can do the same. But it's also about alleviating people from poverty. You know, we can make better houses, we can insulate houses better, Uh, we can have universities doing new research schemes. So right across the the board, those opportunities that come with the journey to net zero and indeed that just transition. Mm-hmm. Well, the, that just transition obviously is going to need some kind of kickstart. It's going to need to move. The Scottish government's already invested £12 million in the just transition uh, training fund, and this has seen almost 4,000 uh, people receive funding to, for training to reskill with. I think a really high percentage of those, like 87%, I think, now in new jobs. How can we broaden this approach in the future? Yeah, and that's that's an important point. Obviously, there's been a lot of success up till now. Um, the Scottish government's obviously invested a little bit more than that in some other projects as well. There's been £62 million in the Energy Transition Fund uh, for the northeast of Scotland. There's been the, the recent announcement of half a billion pounds 
uh, for, for Aberdeen in the northeast of Scotland. Which is unmatched. Yeah, yeah. Unmatched by the, the yeah, UK government. Ex- exactly. And mm. uh, we just found out uh, last week, a letter from Alistair Jack to myself, that they have no intention, the UK government has no intention of of match funding that, which is a, com- a complete betrayal. You know, we've given 350 odd billion pounds to the UK Treasury and they can't match fund 500 million pounds mm-hmm. for the Just Transition Fund. So yeah, there's, there's been a lot of investment from the, the Scottish Government. There will continue to be a lot of investment from the Scottish Government. But what we really need at this moment in time is, is for the, the UK Government to, to step up to the plate. And you know, if they're not willing to do that, then there's an easy route out for Scotland, which is to, to get its own independence, to have the ability to borrow and to invest in Scotland's future. Interesting you're talking about the referendum because people all uh, will make the comparison between us wanting a referendum for Scotland and that, you know, the be, having been a referendum, which we, com, you know, we complain about the result of in the rest of the UK. But there's a very different process there. I remember being in Parliament when they announced the SNAP referendum. There wasn't yeah. any white paper or discussion or anything like yeah. that about it other than a few promises that have been told that come to uh, to mean absolutely nothing or indeed to mean exactly the opposite such as the 350 million pounds a week for uh, for the NHS and, and and famously we were talking about rising energy prices at the moment Boris Johnson yeah. promised that energy prices would be cheaper after Brexit you know these are all the kinds of sound bites that uh, that were used in that really snap uh, decision. So no thoughtful uh, period of reflection, no ability to discuss the issues and in going into that. And isn't it ir- ironic that in 2014, the Better Together campaign was telling Scotland that the only way to keep us in the EU uh, was to vote no. And it's the very same established that establishment that dragged us out just a couple of years later. What does it say to you about the State of the Union that 62% of Scottish voters and every single council area in Scotland voted to remain in the EU, yet we had to leave. Um, I think just to reflect on, on some of those points, Drew, I, you know, to compare the, the Scottish referendum that we went through in 2014 with the, the Brexit referendum, it's chalk and cheese. And you spoke about the, the white paper and the kind of, I guess, the preparation that went into um, the referendum we held in 2014 in comparison to that mm. 2016 very kind of, as you say, it was a kind of snap election that, that took place very quickly, if you remember, on the heels of a Scottish Parliament election. I think mm. I'd only been an MSP a few weeks before mm. um, the, uh, the EU referendum was, was held. And it was it came, I think, as a shock to all of us. But it was at a time when that kind of level of dialogue and discussion had just not been engaged in, in the same way. But to take it back, I guess, to how it affects the union, I think Brexit breaks the union. Mm. And I think there is a well understood recognition of that um, from uh, a number of your colleagues in Westminster who understand that. Um, the feeling that Brexit pulls at the union and really the, the democratic deficit is exposed in its totality. You can see that in election result after election result since 2014, but obviously since 2016 in particular, whereby it's not going away the different voting intentions of different parts of the UK. And I think we also need to remember in Scotland that it isn't just about us, it's also about Wales and Northern Ireland and what Brexit does to them too. And we see that in the way that the devolved governments have been treated um, since the Brexit vote, but equally in the intervening years in terms of the governance being, you know, it's been completely unacceptable. And if I can just reflect some of my own experiences, we were, for example, invited to take part in the Partnership Council meeting between the EU and the UK government. That was in June. So the devolved administrations were entitled to, we were allowed to attend. We were not allowed to speak. 
and we were mm. there on equal footing with the Crown dependencies. Now, that's not acceptable. The the way that you know Brexit uh, has been well, has unravelled, it impacts on so many different areas of devolved competence. And if we're not at the table, we need to be in those conversations. We need to find out how it's going to affect Scottish businesses. You know, we need to be involved in getting our uh, organisations in Scotland ready for changes that need to take place. There is uh, already a number of different bureaucratic challenges to businesses in terms of uh, imports and exports. And all of that detailed discussion we have been frozen out of. So um, there's a real impact, not just on Scotland and our future, but I think on the future of the United Kingdom more generally, because of the tensions it's put on the relationships between the devolved governments and the UK government. And as another example, there has not been a JMCEN meeting since um, last December. So we had the Brexit deal rushed through on Christmas Eve. There was then a JMCEN in between Christmas Eve and New Year. And that was the end of it. Mm. So the UK government, I think, often forget about the devolved governments in this relationship. They forget about our competencies here. Um, sometimes I think it's deliberate. More often than mm. not, I think it's uh, you know an afterthought. They just don't remember yeah. to involve us. But I would note that there is something quite deliberate going on in the UK government at the moment, which is the role of Michael Gove, who, of course, um, only last week has retained a role here in terms of the levelling up agenda and his uh, interest in the union. And... Um, Mr Gove, of course, has been involved in a number of these different meetings um, with the UK government and the EU. And um, I think he understands very well the importance of the devolved governments in these conversations. And that's absolutely why he's also got a secondary agenda, which is through the levelling up um, mm. uh, aspirations and the Internal Market Act allows the UK government, of course, um, to undermine devolution and the powers of the Scottish Parliament. So Brexit has broken Britain, but it will ultimately lead to an independent Scotland. And in the meantime, this... The time that we're living through just now is hugely important that we continue to make the case, of course, for Scottish independence, but also for Scotland to be back in the EU and benefiting from the things that we previously did for, for so many years. Um, it's hugely important that we are, are able to, to make that case positively to the people of Scotland so that we don't allow the UK government in the interim to uh, continue to undermine devolution in the way that they, they have been for um, the last, um, well, at least since uh, the, the last referendum small and medium-sized distilleries, the UK government crow about the opportunity for whiskey, mm. but they've seen their cost of goods go up 20%. That's Oh, that, 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 yeah. that's, uh, that's just the start of it. Yeah. Uh, I have a business in my constituency who buys uh, rolls of fabric from Poland. Mm. Uh, they were previously charged next to zero for mm. carriage, maybe 30 euros. Mm. Now they are routinely being charged a thousand euros a consignment. Mm. That is utterly unsustainable. So, given the situation that they've put Scotland in, and as you say, you know, businesses across the other nations of the UK as well, uh, what, what are your thoughts on the desperate scramble uh, around the world now for new deals? I'm thinking about, you know, the ones that they've been trumping about Australia, New Zealand, etc. Well, there's two bits of that. There was a big dash to kind of roll over the deals we already had by being part of the European Union. But when it came to Norway and Switzerland... Sorry, they've been, they've been claimed as new deals. Well, indeed, they, the they, they were meant to be rollovers. Yeah. But uh, as I say, Norway and Switzerland, just to give two examples, mm -hmm. they didn't roll over what we previously had. Mm -hmm. The real sadness is we had to rely on the Swiss and the Norwegian media uh, to find that out. And in this last week or so, we've had the New Zealand deal trumpeted, you know, great things, all these opportunities. The impact in terms of the UK mm -hmm. is 0% GDP growth. 
but it's a great deal for New Zealand. Mm -hmm. The problem is, in their desperation to sign any kind of deal, they have risked absolutely butchering Scottish agriculture. And while you're talking about butchering in Scottish agriculture, the Farmers Union and others have been up in arms about the uh, the effects. The, the principle that's been put in place with these deals in terms of what's going to happen in terms of imports now and the unfair competition yeah, yeah. For, for goods that are you know produced under very, very different circumstances. Well, therein lies the problem. I and mean, we had fight after fight after fight with many of these rollover trade deals mm. to ensure that agricultural standards not exactly how you did it, but the standards were enforced as part of a trade agreement. Uh, and the Tories fought tooth and nail to stop that. And we can now see why. Uh, you know, they're opening up our market to meat in particular that is not produced to the same standards that we do in Scotland. And that could end up in the long term being a huge problem in terms of public health yeah. and in terms of the agricultural sector. It, it is not just the um, you know the standards that's produced to, which is bad enough because you've got things like pesticides being used yeah. on feed, you've got uh, steroids being used in terms of the meat production itself. But the the animals themselves are you know treated in a very different way. You know, Australia still sanctions forty hour transit yeah. without food, water. Um, there's various and branding, live branding as well. You know, th those are those are things of real concern, aren't they? Well, there are a whole bunch of nasties uh, that in Scotland and in the UK, people fought to stop. Mm -hmm. We're now rolling back the tide, rolling back the clock on many of those gains and advantages. Mm -hmm. Bad news for the animals mm -hmm. and extremely bad news uh, mm -hmm. for the farming sector in Scotland. That brings me on to the uh, the signing of the cooperation agreement between the SNP and Greens. Scotland now has a majority of progressive MSPs in government. What aspects of the deal, uh, I know you touched on it earlier, but let, let's tell me what aspects of the deal excite you in terms uh, of most improving the nation's well-being? There's so many aspects of the deal that are that are um, will help to improve our well-being. Active travel, obviously, is number one, and I think that's maybe a, a somewhat dear to your heart from Indeed. things that you did in the past in the mm -hmm. Highland Council. Um, so yeah, so active travel would be brilliant. You know, we've got this commitment to. Uh, I hope it's still at least one national park. I'd love to see more, but uh, also nature networks. That's very exciting yeah. to me. Uh, the fact that we're now talking about regenerative agriculture, we're not just talking about sustainable agriculture, uh, and regenerative is very different from sustainable. Uh, and and um, also for us in our region, uh, the commitment around funding for rural housing, but more than that, the enablers that can help communities actually create their the housing they need. Because in our you know, in our part of the world, communities don't necessarily need 400 houses on yeah. the edge of their village. They need four or five to, you know, house the, the young family that wants to stay there. And that's going to have to be brought forward by communities. And communities don't necessarily know how to do that. So we need the enablers who've got the skills and the history of bringing housing of that kind about. And, and of course, working together on housing is going to be really important, particularly in rural areas where there's a, a, a real reliance on the tourism economy in the Highlands and Islands. It's about 20% of the economy, really big part of it. But of course, accommodation for people working in uh, the tourism industry, you know, particularly young people, is really, really difficult to get. So that's a, it's it's an difficult. important move forward, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. It's really essential. I mean, I think there's some... 
There's some work that I'll be doing in the local government housing and planning committee coming up in November that I think will help with that. And I think there'll be some other pieces around. Um, so that's short term let's legislation. And then also um, later on in the session, probably some work around second homes um, definitely needs to be looked into. But we also need to yeah, build some houses in the right places for people. Okay. Uh, Ariane, uh, finally, um, independence presents many opportunities to Scotland, the most significant uh, of which is the all-encompassing fact that we'll be able to make our own decisions and to shape the kind of country uh, we want to be. Uh, when you think of an independent Scotland, what, what is your vision? What do you, what do you want to see? Well, as we said, I want to see a Scotland that has all its powers in its hands. And I think where that came from me was actually coming back to live in Scotland from the States. And I think it's that, that thing of like going away and you come mm. back and you can see something more clearly. And what I really, I just really, really saw that Westminster, that, you know, the way that things are governed from Westminster is so far away from us, but also kind of far away in its cultural approach and its, its, well, you know more than I do about <laughs> it, but it yeah. just seems like it's, sorry, Drew, a little bit of the dark ages. Uh, I, I you know? wouldn't disagree. You and, don't have to apologize to me for that. It, it subscribes <laughs> to what I think. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, and I, and I, and, and, and again, we touched on it earlier. I really feel that the, the, the fabric of community care is very mm. alive in Scotland. And, uh, and, and, and that's what I think that could come alive even more. If we bring power to Edinburgh, then I want to see power move much more locally so that we can actually be shaping in Orkney and Shetland and the Western Isles. We can People can be making the decisions that work for where they live because I've actually traveled around the region um, over the summer and um, you know, you, you think, oh, islands. No, the Western Isles is not, you know, they're not the same. Mm. Barra is a completely different, has a completely different set of issues even if you talk about housing in Barra, Lewis and Harris, they're all different issues. They all need housing, but the issues to get there are different. So that's what I would love to see is that we get the power back to Edinburgh and then we look for putting power into people's hands at a local level. We obviously believe that uh, Scotland would be best served by being an independent country. That's what this podcast is about, by talking about the differences with, between the system that we're currently under what the opportunities are for uh, independence but uh, to get there we've got a cha we're challenged on a number of different questions that uh, people are looking for answers on one of those things is about currency for the future um, just remind us what is the SNP policy for currency post independence well firstly i should say that you know that the, the case for independence is born from the fact that you look around the world and some of the best performing countries both in terms of the economy and in terms of society, are small advanced economies that Scotland can emulate very much. Um, one of the best facts I can think of is that if Scotland does choose to become independent, it will be the richest country ever to have become independent. And we should bear that in mind when mm. we consider the hurdles. But it's also true to say, Drew, that, that getting from A to B, as we saw with Brexit, it wouldn't be truthful to say to people that it would be simple and easy and that this isn't going to be a process that's hard. It is going to be hard work, but it will ultimately be worth it. And much of what we talk about, I think, has to be an honesty around what the transition will look like, how long it will take, and, and, and what it will mean. So currency is one of those questions which has become much more hotly debated than certainly I think it deserves to be. I remember speaking to the Irish 
government's representatives right at the start of the growth commission process and they bemoaned the fact that Scotland debated currency so much they didn't care about it. They said they were far more focused as a nation on getting the economy going. And 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 really the SNP's policy is actually what Ireland did, which in, in Ireland's case, when they became independent, they kept sterling for about six years. Mm. And then they had created the punt and, and actually managed to keep the punt linked to sterling for a very long time before they uncoupled and joined the euro. And they did that for a whole variety of very good reasons that are still germane for us. The difference being, of course, that the world is a completely different place now than it was when Ireland became independent. The world's markets are much bigger, much more integrated, much more complicated. And Scotland is much more financially integrated with the rest of the UK than Ireland was mm. in the um, first part of the of the 20th century. So the currency policy is to retain sterling um, for the transition period as we become independent. That that doesn't change anything. It means that what happens just now happens the day after independence. And, and of course, no country becomes independent and immediately has a new currency the next day. That just doesn't well, happen. And it could, but it would bring a whole heap of its own yeah. um, challenges with it. I mean, Scotland, you know, issues its own banknotes just now, but there are no banknotes in Scotland that are actually legal tender. The mm. quirk of history, the, the coins are mm. legal tender, but not the banknotes. So there's a lot of things said about currency, and I think. Um, w- what we are doing there is we are accepting that sovereignty would, on monetary policy, remain with the Bank of England. That will suit us for a transition period anyway, in my opinion. And the big reason for thinking this way is that we want to manage for both the economic and political uncertainty that would come if we were going to move too quickly on currency. So if uh, you know the, the, the risk would be that the, the, the currency would come into being and then quickly devalue, which would be most people in the market's expectation. And that would have an effect on people's income if they were waged from it for in sterling, or it would affect people's pensions or mortgages. It could be upside, it could be downside. The key thing is it would be uncertain. Mm. And the thing that we want to manage for is the risk of money leaving the country, capital flight, which for a new nation is a major risk. It happened to Quebec when they didn't even become independent and much of the money that left and the industries that followed didn't come back. So we're very concerned about that. We were very concerned about it in 2014, which is why um, the then First Minister stuck with the policy of currency union. And that wasn't sustainable um, um, now because, of course, the UK government has said they won't accept such a thing. So we accept um, that there are limits to this, that there are downsides, uh, of course, um, but the upsides are that you you don't risk um, costs to the economy now. And if people thought that the currency was going to be different and it might devalue, they would be making real-world choices in advance of independence that could affect jobs, that could affect investment in the country. This never happened in 2014. There was no evidence of capital flight or foreign direct investment not coming in. And then so so, so over a period of time... In fact, sorry to to stop you there. In fact, investment continued and actually continued to grow after 2014. It really did. And we were the best-performing region outside of of the southeast and regions and nations. But the thing that, that, that um, we should also bear in mind is that everything links up. So the other thing that's really affected uh, by currency choices is, is your ability to fund your deficit. Mm. And all countries need to borrow, of course, for a whole variety of reasons. And we accept that there is a deficit, not as big as is made out, but we accept there is one that will need to be managed and so it will need to be funded. And the point of that is that the money that would be funding that deficit would largely come from outside Scotland. There's not, um, you know, the, 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 the markets that buy bonds are, are, are major international pensions uh, and other funds so it would be a bond market you know countries of our scale would would be looking to international investors to help fund us the good news at the moment is that it's historically very cheap to do so and so covid proves 
that Scotland could fund whatever deficit we start with mm -hmm. um, at very low costs of borrowing. But if you were to introduce the risk of uh, currency fluctuations, then either the lender or the borrower, in this case the government, would need to bear the cost and the risk of that. So let's say the currency was to devalue by 10% or the investors thought it might, they would add 10% to the cost of borrowing in order to cover their risks or the Scottish government would need to bear it. The point being that you're adding an unnecessary uncertainty and risk for a new nation that's just going to the markets to borrow for the first time. Indeed. Far better to get your central bank set up so that we want to have a central bank pretty much um, you know, if, as soon as possible after independence, staffed by excellent people with the same responsibilities as central banks within the Eurozone might have just now around regulation for their financial institutions and information gathering and so on. Interest rates would still be set by the Bank of England um, for, for the transition period. And the six tests that we set up are really around judging whether or not the country is ready for its own currency. Mm -hmm. and, and, and one of those tests is that we've got a central bank functioning, we can hurdle that very quickly. Another is that the ability to borrow and stability around the premium and the risk premium that we might be paying is stable uh, and that it would be in our interest. And I find it very difficult for anyone to argue that we should have a currency before it's in our interest Indeed. to do so. So that's what the six tests measure. Many people argue that they want to go more quickly. Well, the, the best way to go more quickly and to hurdle the test more quickly is to be successful, mm -hmm. to get your institutions set up, to get the economy motoring. You know, it's, it's quite interesting, Drew, many of the arguments put against independence are actually really criticisms of how we are governed just now. You know, the fact that we are so dependent on trade, yeah. uh, certainly in services with the rest of the UK, that was a problem Ireland had. It was 60-70% of their trade came to the United Kingdom before they joined the European Union. Now it's less than 10%. They've Indeed. diversified. Uh, the rest of the UK is a very slow-growing economy, has been in secular relative decline for many decades. So to be overly dependent on that is, is not good for your economy and is not ambitious. Well, thanks for listening. We'll have brand new episodes for you next week and beyond. Don't forget to follow us on social media to keep up to date. Rate, review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. It helps us to create the content that's important to you. If you can share this podcast, it can help others with their decision on Scotland's future. And don't forget, you can find new and previous episodes of Scotland's Choice at scotlandschoice.scot. I'm Drew Hendry, and I hope you'll join me next time on Scotland's Choice.